0: You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 26th of February, 2024.
1: Does protesting about Ukraine or Gaza make any difference in Ukraine or Gaza? Has neutrality become indistinguishable from freeloading? And should more countries be discouraging short-haul flying? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Terry Stiasny and Ben Kelly will discuss the day's big stories, and we will have a report from the Conservative Political Action Conference, which gathered some of the world's foremost conservative intellects, and Liz Truss. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by Terry Stiasny, the author and political journalist, and by Ben Kelly, audience editor for Newsweek. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Um, Terry, as regular listeners will be aware, you had previously disclosed plans to visit Miami. You have since visited Miami... You are now back from Miami. How was Miami? My,
0: Miami was great. Um, the sun was shining. Uh, there was happy hour. There were mojitos. There were iguanas in the streets. Uh, there was really good Cuban food. Um, it's not a place I would want to live. Because it's quite difficult to get around. It's not like the most livable city, but for a week... There's, the there's beach, also ig- it was,
1: iguanas in the streets, Terry. There,
0: there are iguanas. In there. They're quite entertaining. There were there were roosters in, in the streets in, in Little Havana. Roosters
1: oh. and iguanas go, in the streets. Yeah,
0: it's, like it's like a zoo. It's I've
1: been yeah. to Miami at least twice. I didn't see any <laughs> iguanas or a single rooster. <laughs> yeah,
0: well, you just weren't looking. Probably.
1: I should probably have left the hotel. <laughs> um, uh, ben, uh, audience editor at Newsweek. Newsweek, which has recently been publishing a cover story you worked on about North Korea.
2: Yeah, um, I, the first time I've assigned a story that made it to the, the front of the magazine, which is great, by a wonderful reporter called Ellie Cook. And she worked on it um, for a long time, uh, just you know, looking at the potential fallout from the collapse of a North Korean state, which is the kind of thing that keeps me up at night.
1: Um, which is something that, well, regrettably unlikely on the face of it to happen soon. But this, this is the thing with those, well, with tyrannies generally, they, when they unravel, it tends to happen fast. Yeah,
2: you know, you think of the Berlin Wall, one day it's there, one day it's not, that kind of thing is... uh
1: It could happen anywhere, yeah. Well, one place it has happened at least once in the past is Russia seamlessly along, which sort of tees up our first item because this past Saturday marked two years since Russia launched its 72-hour lightning conquest of Ukraine, an operation which, thanks to the gallantry of Ukraine's military and Ukraine's people, remains very much a work in progress. The anniversary was observed with decent-sized demonstrations in cities across Europe, many of which have also been hosting regular and hefty Protests in support of Gaza. And in Washington, D.C., yesterday, one protester, Aaron Bushnell, a serving U.S. airman, set himself alight outside the Israeli embassy with fatal consequences. Um, ben, first of all, as a, a general principle, and we are not the first to have asked this question, but why is it the case that the conflict between Israel and Hamas, or the broader conflict between Israel and Palestine, arouses passions all over the world that so many other and frankly much bigger conflicts just don't. Yeah, it is so interesting. It's kind of like um,
2: it's sort of the mother of all issues, really, and there's so many things. I was speaking to some friends about this, and we were saying it's almost because, you know, every time you get or you see an argument between two people who are very passionate on each side, they kind of can go on forever and ever taking it backwards in history and going up with alternative arguments. Um, It's a very difficult thing to find consensus on, which is you know clearly why the, mm-hmm. the the issue itself is still ongoing but you're right I think it's not just the sort of diasporas around the world of arab communities or jewish people it goes way beyond that into all of our societies and and you know constituencies um i, I you know I, i'd love to i'd love someone to explain it further but you're right it does seem to be something that roots in in a way that other conflicts don't you know it has taken over ukraine to some extent in terms of people's consciousness it's the thing people are getting on the streets about more um And people have been thinking about this for decades, but what you see at the moment is a lot of younger generations, I feel, are being politicised through this, or they're learning about it for the first time. It's their sort of formative thing. It's almost like apartheid was in the 80s, perhaps. It's something Mm. that they're really seeing. They're seeing injustice and different, and that's forming part of their identities. It's really fascinating.
1: I mean, has there become, Terry, a somewhat, to this one especially, Israel versus Palestine, a somewhat tribal, ritualistic aspect to it? People sort of decide that this particular side look like they're my people and they go to these sort of protests therefore I should as well
0: Yes, I think that is um, a part of it. And I think, yeah, because there have been these demonstrations and protests so regularly since the 7th of October, obviously, you know, people demonstrating on both sides, I think that has reinforced that sense of identity. You know, it becomes that is a thing that I do. I am the kind of person who protests about this. I am the kind of person who feels very strongly um, about this. And so it kind of takes on a momentum, and I think that you know the less that people feel that governments are responding to their protests and to what they would like to see happen, you know whether they would like a ceasefire, whether they 're more concerned about you know returning returning the hostages, then people get a sense of frustration and feel that they are not achieving anything, and so in a way that makes you more inclined to turn out.
1: Um, Ben, does this look, I guess, well, does it land differently from somebody who, like yourself, is from a part of the world where there was a conflict which did arouse great international passions and did attract support on one side or the other from people whose, how to put it, understanding of the situation was not necessarily, not necessarily, not necessarily uh, terribly informed or nuanced?
2: Yes. And as you say that, it occurs to me for the first time in my head that, you know, one such example was maybe um, Irish Americans who were Mm. very invested in the Republican side and the conflict in Ireland. People who innately would have been very anti-terrorist, but somehow thought it was, um, you know, sort of warming to fight against the British, (laughs) really. You know what I mean? Um, And there was that sense of them being a bit misled and they obviously funded a lot of it and so forth. So that's one such example of, yes, people certainly invested in the Northern Ireland conflict and took their sides. And we have the whole sort of Celtic Rangers, wear, you're literally wear the shirt you want to wear, you know, what you want to support. Um, but what I would also say is interesting is there's such a passion in Northern Ireland for supporting, namely, the Palestinian side so. over there. Um, but that is something that we have kind of almost given back. There's a real sense that, well, when we were not being listened to, people internationally did speak up for us and we were supported. And people are sort of giving that back. That's strictly sort of speaking through the one side, the Palestinian angle. Obviously, there are people in Ireland who are very um, pro-Israel as well, but I think it's a smaller
1: faction. Um, Terry, what we did want to get into was the possibly unanswerable, but it's your job to try, question of whether large-scale street protest ever changes anything. I mean, the most famous example of it not changing anything was in this country a little over 21 years ago. Uh, Perhaps one and a half million people marched in London against the looming invasion of Iraq, which is a huge, huge crowd. Um, And the invasion of Iraq obviously went ahead anyway.
0: Um, yeah, and I was going to mention, you know, the Brexit demonstrations, which also pretty much changed absolutely nothing at all. I mean, after the vote, there were lots of people going, you know, we want to stay in. And, you know, those, they weren't really protests, they weren't fierce, they were precisely the opposite they were very sort of genteel british day out it was like mm. sort of going to a national trust property <laughs> with lots of other people who all have had this nice sense of kind of moral warmth feeling that you know, well, you know but they didn't it didn't change anything um and you know the question is whether um, you it's got to have that feed into the process you know You know, if you're lobbying your MP, ideally not in a hostile shouting at them in the street kind of way and saying, you know, we think you should change your policy on this and, you know, trying to persuade the process. I think that does have an impact. But I think just turning out in the street in huge numbers, it shows that people have strong feelings about it, but it doesn't actually answer the more complicated questions and these are obviously all hugely complicated questions
1: Ben does the media though have a tendency to over-report protests and therefore amplify what may be well may make them seem more important than they actually are and I realise as I say it this is a circular argument because if it's on the news then it kind of becomes important by uh, by default but Just think, even in London, if you had a protest which attracted 100,000 people, that is an objectively huge crowd. That is a lot of people to gather in one place at one time. Um, But it would still mean that 9 million people didn't go.
2: Yeah, quite. And as you pointed out with those Brexit demonstrations, it was one thing having hundreds of thousands of people saying, we want to stay in. You know, 52% had still voted to leave. Mm. It wasn't ever going to, be, you know, it's a demonstration. It's not something that's actively going to say, we actually outnumber those people. I think what, what I see much more is people accusing the media of not reporting on protest. You see, oh, you're not going to see this on the BBC, is the, you know, is the phrase that they use, especially as they pass the BBC. They love to do that. Um, we're outside. It, 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 except that
1: you usually do actually see it on the BBC. It's, yeah. that they, they haven't looked for it yeah.
0: having, having been a BBC person standing at the demonstration saying <laughs> look I'm trying to get on air but they're not really interested I'm sorry you know?
2: <laughs> and, and the thing is there's also that sense of a little bit of fatigue and a little bit of um, diminishing returns What I mean by that is there's been Palestinian protests in London sort of you know every weekend in some mm-hmm. respects since it's began but you see them less and less you know I heard about one anecdotally at the weekend that I didn't know was going on you know disrupting one of the bridges but I think there is a sense of well how much can we say this is going on it's just ongoing um, and then it does sort of fall off the news agenda. It doesn't mean it's being ignored, but it's rather it's not anything new.
1: Well, it being ongoing, we will doubtless have ample opportunity to come back to it. But in Europe, meanwhile, neutrality has officially and finally become just that little bit less fashionable. Hungary, after nearly two years of obstruction, has finally signed off on Sweden's accession to NATO, ending nearly two centuries of Swedish neutrality after King Gustav XIV declared in 1834 that Sweden would henceforth sit Europe's conflicts out. The joining of NATO by Sweden and and Finland leaves only three major European countries determinedly neutral, Switzerland, Austria and Ireland. More on Ireland in particular shortly, but first, here is what Sweden's Defence Minister, Paul Jönsson, told me about Sweden's accession when I spoke to him at the recent Munich Security Conference. I asked him whether membership of NATO would enable Sweden to better aid Ukraine, including dispatching Saab's famously versatile Gripen fighter jet that would be one of the
3: prerequisites that we have to be covered by article 5 and NATO's common defense planning because before we could undertaking m- measures that could have an impediment on our air defense system this is also an, a decision that we would not be able to take alone because as you know the Gripen also consists of subcontractors and we are in the, in the fighter jet coalition as it's called as well and we're thinking how we best can support the Ukrainian with uh, fourth generation fighters right now a lot of focus is on F-16 but there's also some so who don't operate the F-16, we can still contribute with landing training, financing, allowing our territory to be used for exercise and so forth. So we have an open mind about this, but uh, I don't know, in, do not in any way exclude the possibility that we could also send the Gripen.
1: Pål Jonsson, Sweden's defence minister, speaking to me at the recent Munich security conference. Um, Terry, first of all, on the subject of the Gripen, do we assume, would it be too cynical of us to assume that Hungary's acquiescence at last in Sweden joining NATO is not unrelated to Sweden's recent agreement to sell Hungary for more uh, grip and Sea fighter planes?
0: Well, I think in these kind of deals where somebody is objecting, there is always um, a trade-off. And obviously, I don't know exactly what the trade-off is, but that does sound, you know, quite a, a plausible argument. But obviously, I think Hungary's been put under pressure from quite a few quarters trying to say, you know, look, you need to agree to this, you need to, you know drop your objections um to sweden and they've obviously finally felt felt that pressure
1: and just to follow that up um terry sweden joining we should not forget is is actually a pretty big whoop it turns the baltic sea into lake nato um do you think people have kind of forgotten how big a deal this is given that it has taken so long there was huge excitement at the time when sweden and finland applied together
0: well, yeah, I think obviously, you know, for for Sweden and Finland both, these are these are big shifts in the kind of you know attitudes that you've had for years. And you are going to come on to Ireland and in, in Austria as well. It becomes kind of part of your national identity. It becomes part of who you are, and you have this idea that neutrality is you know is quite a sort of a noble thing to do or a sensible thing to do at the very least. And to try and suddenly and shift that and to change the public mind about it, it is remarkable how quickly that's happened.
1: Um, ben, to the subject of Ireland, do you think Ireland, well, if Sweden can be shifted on this, surely Ireland can. What, what is Ireland's... If you could just explain a bit, I guess, where the roots of that are. I mean, anybody who has attended enough British pub quizzes will be aware that Ireland is so committed to neutrality that it actually extended formal condolences to Germany upon the otherwise largely unlamented death of its Chancellor in 1945.
2: Yes, that is correct. Yeah, that was... um, (laughs) uh, Yeah, I mean, in a nutshell, um, Ireland's neutrality goes right back to the 1920s when Ireland first um, had a free state and and then became the Republic. Um, Um, a big part of it was distancing itself from Britain being Mm. you know not wanting to be involved in Britain's wars of course they just had the first world war and then they were looking into the second which they completely stayed out of they didn't want to be involved
1: Worth noting though that thousands of Irishmen uh, fought in both of them under the British flag because they thought there were bigger factors in play Indeed and were mistreated at home for
2: that and that's a a whole long other saga Um, but I think Ireland does kind of pride itself Uh, initially yes it's about being not Britain and so therefore not getting involved in all these things. But I think as time has gone on, it's become a little bit of a, a moral thing. People in Ireland feel they, you know, it's good for them to stay out of conflict. They don't want to be involved. Um, and as I was saying before we came in, I think as years have gone on as well, and particularly with NATO, I think there's a big feeling in Ireland against sort of American imperialism. They don't want to be a part of something that gets them into America's wars. That sort of thing is a very strong vibe mm. as well. So that's kind of the parted history of it.
1: But is there, there, just to follow that up, nevertheless not a reasonable argument that Ireland is taking something of a free ride here? It it is obviously in an extremely geographically um, significant situation and yet um, the army has just two brigades and two quite small brigades, if that, that no air combat capability at all um, and a tiny navy, six patrol vessels including four named after Irish writers and we can now all do the jokes about how the James Joyce just goes round and round in circles on completely incomprehensible missions, and everybody stops pretending they've enjoyed after about the first third of it.
2: Uh, yeah, well, at least those, those <laughs> boat names remind us of what we do do well, which is riding, um, fighting. Perhaps not so so much. Um, oh, I've lost wind of your of your question.
1: Uh, Does Ireland need to take this more seriously?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think the people who would say, oh, you know, I feel good that Ireland's not involved in these alliances and so on, are also kind of the people who would expect to be... Defended by mm. our friends, whether it's across either of the any of the water around us, and um, should we come into difficulty, and I think there is a little bit of a hypocrisy there that it goes unspoken, and sometimes there have been leaders in Ireland, the current um, Taoiseach Leo Varadkar, Miho Martin, his de- his deputy, they've all sort of pointed towards us, kind of saying, "Come on, guys, like you, you know, we have to sort of almost grow up," mm. but you know that's. A difficult conversation to have and the Irish political establishment would like to go in that direction but they have not got the support and they're not able to move people with them. You mentioned Sweden. I think the difference of Sweden and Finland is they're on Russia's doorstep and they're feeling that much more acutely. But the threat to Ireland from Russia could be just as as severe if they decided they wanted to, to
1: pick on Ireland um, because we're, we go through the middle of so many of those important lanes. Um, is there any way, Terry, that the United Kingdom that could encourage Ireland in this direction that wouldn't make matters worse...
0: Um, it, it is really difficult it's difficult I mean you know looking at uh, the recent report from, from Policy Exchange it would be pretty you know using some really harsh language about uh, sort of Irish military preparedness of, of the lack of it you know which is sort of saying it's got flimsy security apparatus an unreliable strategic ally and, and freeloading and I thought for Brit- something that was introduced by British conservatives this is not necessarily the way to get Ireland to move in, in the way that you would like it to be going um, but you know there's there are obviously big issues. They, you know, people seem to be really worried about the safety of you know, the transatlantic cables going under the Atlantic. They're worried about uh, gas pipelines. They're worried about all sorts of other kind of security things. And I think people feel that, you know, maybe this is the sort of the Western approaches of, of Europe, which is not as well guarded as we we're talking about the Baltic and, and other areas of Europe are. So, but, you know, maybe sort of softly, softly is, is the way to go about that. Uh,
1: Terry Stiasny and Ben Kelly, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. But now, after a commanding victory in Saturday's South Carolina primary, former US President Donald Trump is closing in on the Republican presidential nomination for the third straight election. His only remaining opponent, former UN Ambassador and South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, has vowed to stay in the race until at least Super Tuesday. But as a visit to this past weekend's conservative political action conference outside of Washington, D.C. confirmed, the Republican Party is is now firmly the party of Trump. Washington reporter H.J. Mai, who attended the conference, has more.
3: The annual Conservative Political Action Conference, better known as CPAC, is the self-described largest gathering for conservative activists in the United States. Its first keynote speaker was no other than former U.S. President Ronald Reagan. Here he is speaking at CPAC in 1981. Fellow citizens, fellow conservatives... Our time is now. Our moment has arrived. The conservative movement has undergone several transformations since Reagan. Over the past few years, many conservatives, including many inside the Republican Party, have been shifting toward populism, led by former President Donald Trump. And that trend was highlighted again at this year's CPAC, by speaker after speaker, including Kerry Lake.
0: Donald Trump was exactly the man we needed in 2015, and he's exactly the man we need today for the job.
3: The broadcast journalist-turned-politician is running for the U.S. Senate in the state of Arizona. Just like the former president, Lake is an election denier who claims her loss in the 2022 Arizona governor's race was because of voting irregularities. And just like the former president, she has yet to present any evidence for this claim. It's just one of many assertions that CPAC speakers and organizers have made that portray America as a country on the brink of collapse.
0: Four years
1: ago, I told you that if crooked Joe Biden got to the White House, our borders would be abolished, our middle class would be decimated, and our communities would be plagued by bloodshed, chaos, and violent crime. We were right about everything. These are the stakes of this election. Our country is being
3: destroyed. And the only thing standing between you and its obliteration is me. It's true. Donald Trump spoke for more than an hour in front of an adoring crowd that was dressed in red MAGA hats, shirts with patriotic slogans, or dresses in the colors of the American flag. There was even a woman dressed up as the Statue of Liberty with the words Trump Tribe of Texas on her back. Natasha Owens also attended the event. And she wants to see more Christian values being reflected in today's politics.
0: I want freedom. I want freedom for my family, freedom for my grandkids
1: coming up. But I'm a conservative Christian, and, you know, we, we get a bad rap being Christians in politics, but we, Christianity has to be a center influence in politics.
3: For this crowd, Donald Trump is the savior that can rescue the country from its pending doom. It's a notion that was echoed throughout the event, like from biotech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswani. We are in the middle of a war in this country. It is a war between those of us who love the United States of America and our founding ideals and a fringe minority who hates this country and what we actually stand for. And right now, more than ever, we need a commander in chief who is going to lead us to victory in that war. And that man is Donald J. Trump. Ramaswamy, who made a name for himself during the Republican primary, has become the new darling of the America First movement. He, like many other conservatives, opposes additional U.S. aid for Ukraine, denies that President Joe Biden won the 2020 election, and accuses the administration of weaponizing the justice system to go after political opponents. Further evidence of Ramaswamy's popularity among CPAC attendees provided this year's straw poll results, which ask who should be Trump's vice presidential running mate. Ramaswamy, was tied with South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem at the top, both receiving 15% of the vote. Noem, like fellow Republican Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida, has garnered national attention for her handling of the coronavirus pandemic.
1: Leadership matters.
3: I'm just going to say it. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they suck. (laughs) Chance of USA, USA erupted frequently throughout the three-day conference. And even though speakers often cited former President Reagan, who famously referred to America as a shining city on a hill and an example to the world, the tenor at CPAC was that America should step back from the international stage and focus on its issues at home. The theme of this year's conference, quote, where globalism goes to die, end quote, made this abundantly clear. This current iteration of American conservatism is all about Trump and his grievances. And there's no place for dissent. Whether that's enough to attract independent voters and dissatisfied Democrats in November's general election remains to be seen. But as former British politician Nigel Farage pointed out during his appearance at CPAC, it's Trump or nothing for a global populist movement.
1: This election here in America affects all of us. It affects the safety of the world. As for the first time since 1945, a possibility of World War III looks real. Let's get this man back in the White House and let's get. For Monocle, I'm H.J. Mai in Washington. That was H.J. Mai who went to the Conservative Political Action Conference, so the rest of us didn't have to. Um, let's bring the panel in uh, just briefly. Um, Terry, I think it's important to emphasize that that did not contain quite a lot of the properly mad stuff, and that still nevertheless contained quite a lot of mad stuff.
0: Yes, it's um, it's just astonishing. It just seems like a, a completely parallel reality. And I have to say, in Miami, I didn't notice a whole lot of... Obviously, there's loads going on in Florida politics, but just occasionally you'd walk past a TV screen and it would be Trump appears in Florida court regarding the documents at Mar-a-Lago. And it was, it was as though the CPAC conference is... is like existing in a slightly different you know time zone or something Um, but then occasionally you get these like Fox News actually starting to challenge him and actually starting to say but Mr President you didn't actually win the election and the look on Trump's face of sort of disbelief and this slight kind of crumpling as he's actually being challenged on on this thing that he clearly believes is is just really bizarre to watch. Um,
1: Ben almost poignant there to hear a clip of Ronald Reagan talking at the top of it and though the Republican Party does still pay considerable lip service to Reagan and there is a Reagan event at CPAC. If, if he ran for a Republican nomination for anything now, they would chase him to the city limits at Pitchfork Point. This is true. I did see Trump boasting last week, you know, they said if they brought back from the
2: dead Lincoln and Washington, I'd beat him in a poll. You know, he was doing all this sort of thing. But you're, you're quite right. If Reagan was disposing his uh, view, no, he'd be being very Pro Ukraine in the face of Russia, for example, mm-hmm. and that is out with the mag a lot That is not, you know, they don't they don't want to do that at all. So that kind of thing in particular would um, would would have him on the fringes.
1: Well, just another ten more months of this, and then perhaps who knows another four years. But to Spain now, where the bane of the plane is to be mainly reined in by the train. That sentence could have gone on some while longer, but you've all got the joke. Uh, Spain, like its neighbour France, is to finally enact a long-mulled ban on domestic short. Hall flights where a plausible rail alternative is available. The basic gist is that if you're not connecting to an international flight and your journey is less than two and a half hours on the train, then the train is what you're getting. The original pitch by the Sumar party, currently the junior partner in Spain's governing coalition, was to ban any domestic flight where you could train it in four hours, which would not have left much. Madrid to Barcelona, for example, is just under three hours by rail, and there are nevertheless about 15 direct 80 minutes flights a day. Um Terry do you operate a cut-off at which you think no I'm getting the train instead?
0: Um I generally wouldn't I can't think of the last time that I flew sort of domestically within the UK. Um so that's probably Four or five. I mean, somewhere like Edinburgh or Cornwall is kind of a four or five-hour train journey, and it's just the hassle, and you know the difficult. You've got to get to the airport. You've spent all of that time, but in this country, at least, the downside is the huge, huge cost. Of train travel, I mean, compared with France, where they've already done the same thing, our train fares are just astronomical, um, and they're not always reliable. So you might think I'm going to take a train that takes four hours to Edinburgh, and you're stuck in, you know, in York or something for the duration. Um,
1: ben Terry has there delineated the upside and the downside, and you're quite right. If I am going to Glasgow or Edinburgh, by and large, in theory, I would much rather get the train because not only is it a much more pleasant way to travel than by the time you have factored in the getting to and from airports and faffing around at airports, it is actually quicker to spend four hours on the train than an hour and a bit on an aeroplane. But the trouble is, Ben, is it not that this only works in countries where the railways don't absolutely suck?
2: Yes, I think you were being very generous there when you said that the trains aren't always reliable. (laughs) I would go further and say they're a shambles in this country. (laughs) They're an embarrassment and you couldn't rely on them for anything at all. It's awful. I you know, I look uh with envy at Europe where people can sort of you know, there are these great countries that have, you know, high functioning trains and you can go across borders and, you know, all that sort of stuff and here, it just doesn't have quite the same allure but yes I would much rather get a train if I could um, for the reasons you explained I'd rather be sitting in the one spot for a little bit longer Mm -hmm. than have to be moving around go to airports and the hours you've got to be there getting to the airports Um, you know I love going to Paris on the train I love being able to step off a train and you're already at your destination I think that If possible, yeah, we should all be doing it. Whether it's got anything to do with, you know, carbon or not, I think it's a nicer way to travel. It should be invested in property in this country anyway.
1: Well, absolutely so. But, Terry, nevertheless, is it the government's business, uh, whether or not people travel by plane or rail? People may prefer to travel by plane. Um, Is it right to deprive them of that chance if that's what they'd rather do?
0: Um, uh, I mean... I think you could, but I think um, it would I'm be... I'm sounding very...
1: like a crazed libertarian <laughs> A crazed here.
0: libertarian. Um, I think it's, you know, you just imagine the amount of arguments that people will get, but I, I'm not sure you can. Two and a half hours doesn't actually get you very far on a train in this country, which is the, the downside of us having slow it trains. It barely gets you across well, London. <laughs> well, yeah, not not managing to build new railway lines. So I'm not sure how many people actually do fly to Bristol from London, because that would seem pointless, and that's about a, a two-hour and something train journey. So you, you might just be allowed to get a plane to to Manchester um, which you know but I, I can't see this government doing because Rishi Sunak likes to get a helicopter even if he's just going across the road so I, I can't see that happening anytime soon
1: um, Is there more that could be done not so much to discourage uh, people from flying Ben but to encourage them to take the train and obviously I think we can take as read yes try assembling an actually functional and affordable rail network which this country obviously has not done but there are those countries that have I'm just wondering are there Because a thing that deters me slightly from getting long train journeys Uh, and I do really like travelling by train. I have voluntarily spent in my time literal days on trains travelling across Russia or travelling across Europe but does more need to be done he said inserting his own prejudices into a a question to address the behaviour of one's fellow commuters
2: Yes, I think that if you instated a rule whereby anyone who took a FaceTime call out loud or played something on their phone out loud was turfed off at the next station or indeed somewhere close to it. I'd be much rather <laughs> inclined to go on with that kind of uh, that kind of train journey. See,
1: I, I agree with this somewhat, Terry, in that I do agree that these people should be turfed off the train, but I, I'm not really into any of this waiting till the next station nonsense. I mean, like, e- even if you're doing 300 kilometres an hour across Europe, <laughs> kick a door open and throw them into the that hedge. There
0: was a the great story in France a Only couple of years ago, where there was a man who was misbehaving on a high-speed train. They did pull in at an unscheduled stop took the guy off and left him, abandoned him in the middle of France on some platform in the middle of nowhere. So I think that's a good deterrent effect. You only need to do it a couple of times and then it'll be in the news and everyone will hopefully start behaving. Uh,
1: Also, I would favour reintroducing conductors and issuing them with tasers.
0: But there is
2: often an absence of staff. I know because they're overworked and so forth, but you do often see there's no one really coming through or checking on that kind of thing. And I think you do need that to
1: instill a little bit of who's in charge here. Uh, And and Terry, I think as an English person, it does possibly, you're the person who can explain the particular passive-aggressive dilemma that descends upon the designated quiet carriage. Uh, And I I don't know which is worse, travelling with the rowdy riffraff in the normal carriage or travelling in the quiet carriage where you can't... Can't relax, I don't think, because everybody's on edge waiting for that person to transgress
0: go <laughs> you know, there's the massive sort of passive aggressive tutting or sort of sharp intake of breath if you make a noise yeah which is maybe maybe it just needs to be a sort of you know we all accept the rules and you get on the train and you go I, I accept the rules of whichever carriage I'm in and I'm just going not going not going to cause ructions
1: and tasers obviously <laughs> uh, but finally to an apparent resurgence in the use of cash money a poll in Switzerland by the central bank thereof discovered that 92 percent of public facing companies are still accepting in cash, and that it remains the most popular means of settling Swiss restaurant bills, despite prices which may well necessitate bringing a sack full of francs in order to pay for your bagel. Why, yes, this is an anecdote from real life. More broadly, it says here that the young folk have become keen on cash, or at least of making videos of themselves putting it in envelopes for some reason. Um, Before we get into all this, I wanted to ask each of you in turn, you first of all, Ben, what was the last cash purchase you... You made, I can start with the weekend before last, I paid cash for lunch for me and team foreign desk at a cafe in Munich, which did not accept credit cards.
2: OK, I was um, given cash, sort of like 20 quid, um, and I have used it ever since to enter our local pub quiz, which costs a couple of quid every week. And he takes the cash and I use it for that. And when I run out of that, I don't know what I'm going to do. Really.
1: But you were given cash specifically to spend on the local pub quiz? or um, No, although we
2: have one money there. But no, someone, someone had to pay me back for something. Oh, okay. I got them and they gave me a £20 note and I looked at it like, oh, God, but... No, I have to use it at the pub, so it keeps me going back. Which pub quiz is this? Pays well, does it? Well, I don't want to brag, but two weeks ago we did 165 quid.
1: I'm going to put together a Mm. team. That they, they, You don't often oh. find one that pays like that. What do
2: you want to say?
1: <laughs> uh, Terry, what was, what was the last cash purchase you made? The
0: Other last... than
1: all the drugs and guns, obviously. I <laughs> can't
0: tell you about that. Don't ask me about those. Uh, the last one I can remember was uh, paying uh, the excess on a on a cab fare in, in Miami because there had been some miscalculation about the card. But the <laughs> no, thing well, That's, right, what, is, he told that's what he told you. <laughs> anyway, there was some strange discrepancy. And I did happen to have a few dollars left over from the last time that I'd been to the states, but the thing I did notice there was that you know, I'm got so used to paying for things on my phone. But then when you're in somewhere where like the mobile data and everything is really expensive, so you're not using your phone. Like, oh, I've got to get the plastic card out—the interim thing that I'd sort of forgotten about See, I, between I, the I, card I, and the cash. I
1: haven't gone phone payment. Oh. Can't. I, I don't like the idea of something that can conceivably run out of battery.
0: Yes. Yeah, uh, have fun.
1: you gone full phone payment yet, Ben?
2: No, I haven't. Um, just a tap. Uh, so I use a Monzo card, which I love, um, and I tap that for everything. I'm very anti-cash. I think it's dirty.
1: OK. Uh, Terry, are you anti-cash? Do you do you, do you think this alleged resurgence in cash among the youth is basically the annoying hipster equivalent of buying vinyl?
0: Um it hasn't happened so I've got two teenagers and although they get given cash for a sort of birthday presents and things they are not that keen they, they don't look at it going, what, what is this sort of do, why have you given me a going, picture you know, of the it's queen. Them getting them to go and actually pay it into the bank so that they can then take it out using their cards is the sort of thing they're like they don't use it very much I mean obviously they're, they're glad to have it but this idea about stuffing cash into envelopes I don't really understand that because it's supposedly you put your money you can budget mm. by putting your cash into the envelopes and then putting it under the mattress or something but can't you just take it from one envelope to the other when you run out, as you would do with every normal sort of transaction. I don't, I don't get it.
1: Just finally, Ben, do you have a thought on the cash stuffing craze by which I guess I'm asking you, would you recommend keeping large sums of cash in your home, making film of it and broadcasting that fact <laughs> on the internet?
2: Well, it's a bit like when Kim Kardashian was taking photographs of her diamonds and jewels in Paris and then next thing you know, they were robbed from her. Um, Yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, If you're using any of these, I said Monzo, but also Revolut, those little cards come with the app and you've got little pots and you can move your money around. It's the digital equivalent of envelopes and you can sort of move your money around, budget for the month, that's the way forward. These kids, they don't know what they're
0: doing. See, unemployed bank robbers could get back into business. So that's
1: good for them. <laughs> well, on that upbeat note, Terry Stiastny and Ben Kelly, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. The show was produced by Chris Chermack and researched by Neuma Ekwe. Our sound engineer today was Sarah Nicholl. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening.